Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. YSIM, filling in for Joan. Today, tomorrow, next week. It's kind of fun just to, to do like a, it's kind of like an extended stay. Like one of those hotels where you also have a kitchen. You can cook a few meals. That's kind of how I feel. So this, this is my verbo. Although I don't have the whole house. I just I just have, so, so Airbnb then. That's what we got. I, I really owe Andy Miles, who dashed in and, and brought this tidbit. Um, normally, when um, normally when a celebrity news comes up, y- you might not hear a lot about it on WCPT because we do arts, we do culture, we do politics, we do a lot of things, but not usually celebrity news. But this one, this loss crosses. Pretty much every every category. I'm talking about the loss of Tom Smothers, who made people laugh and changed their minds. That, in my opinion, is one of the best ways to change people's minds. If you can make somebody laugh, you open their heart, you open them up to hearing something differently and something new. Uh, here's a little piece of how they did it. I mean this sincerely. We'll only we'll only endorse things that we really believe in. Oh, that's good. I thought I was worried. Like aluminum second. siding, paint, gypsum, concrete, wallpaper, and gravel Will pits. you just tell me why you're doing all of this stuff? Money, money, money. That's where it's at, Dickie. Money. No, okay. So I have time to study and philosophize about life. See? Oh, so well, I that's... can understand okay. where the truth is. That's better. And get dressed up and rent things to older people and make a big profit on it. Now, wait. Money is a thing in life. Tommy, money is not all money that is important, the... Tommy. That, that, listen, the important things in life you cannot buy with money. You, you cannot buy love and humility and compassion. You, you can't s- buy any of those you, things. You say money is not important. No, it's Then how not. come people steal and cheat and lie to each other for money if it's not that important? If it was, if are you I mean, kidding? Those, if those things that you say were so important, this, you see like, that that's not them pretty much going for the punchline there. But you get a sense of where they could head, and then make you laugh. This particular this particular joke uh, talks about how um, they're going to go into business and make a lot of money. My favorite: they're going to open up a pet store. You can buy a chicken if you don't like it. You can eat it. Yeah. Um, but as you can see, if you can talk about money, class, all that stuff as as a comedy routine, you can actually change the way that people look at the world. And they got in so much trouble. They were censored. They were canceled by CBS. Um, and if, if you haven't heard, Tom Smothers was 86 years old, died from uh, cancer today. His brother, Dick, still living. Uh, I had not realized that their dad was taken prisoner in the Japanese invasion of Pearl Harbor and died in captivity. I had not known that. Just was looking over the bio. They won millions as a result of CBS canceling their show, violating their contract. They were censored. They fought back. They brought Pete Seeger the folk artist who's been so inspiring to so many people, including Bruce Springsteen. They brought Pete Seeger back and put him on their show uh, after he had been blacklisted and the show was censored. So they brought him back again. They had some guts. And they could 
really make people laugh. It was a gift, and and by doing so, they changed their minds. There was an interview in the Chicago Sun-Times um, about, gosh, 20, 25 years ago, where they pointed out that their first big club appearance as a national act happened here in Chicago at Mr. Kelly's. They had been performing on college campuses. They had been performing in small clubs. They were invited to the Ed Sullivan show. And then after that, everything changed for them. But what they really did was uh, they were in those days, if you were lucky, you got three TV stations and it was destination viewing. And it changed something about the way that people used media. It really did. It used to be that um, TV, network TV, the whole objective was not to upset people, not to disturb them, not to tell them anything they really didn't want to hear. If you had disturbing news, well, that was news, and it was on the news, and that was that. But shows like The Smothers Brothers and Laugh-In, and there was cross-pollination between the two, the, those programs, and when... um some of the bigger shows like Carson became willing to put on acts like the Smothers Brothers um, and a cleaned up version of George Carlin. That's when the message started permeating that you could be a little edgier. Now it's it's almost irrelevant. I mean, we have Jon Stewart, but that's Cable, Colbert. Um, they, you know, since retired, Stewart at least from from a daily show, uh, the daily show. But once once you're paying a subscription or once you're finding it on your on your internet, um, your your feed of podcasts or streaming, it's not a unifying cultural shift that you're seeing. And in a way, the fact that this doesn't happen on network TV anymore is one of the reasons I, I would I would offer that we're so divided. It's not just that people are getting their news from different places. They're getting their entertainment and the butts of jokes are very different depending on where you absorb your information. One of the earliest examples for radio that I remember, I mean, talk radio has always been, there have always been political talk stations. And then, of course, when you were growing up, there were the the warm and friendly neighborly stations like GN. That was where talk radio was when I grew up. But there were always places where it got a little little more cutting edge. But it really shifted. Um, I think Paul Harvey was one. He was he was very conservative, very traditional. When he shifted his view on the Vietnam War, the country it was like getting the it was like the ice bucket challenge for the whole country. What Paul Harvey <laughs> has shifted his position on the Vietnam War, and then there was Rush Limbaugh. And at first, before he started, as my girlfriend Sam used to say, "Never believe your own PR." Before he started believing that he was the most important political force in America, he actually had his same political views and he could appeal to more people because he made them laugh. You'll hear a lot of people say, well, I used to be, you know, just a regular blue collar voting Democrat. And then I started listening and he his way in his his aperture of penetration was, was that he could make you laugh. And for a long time, we the, the Democrats and the liberals really tried hard to, to find talk radio that would um, make people laugh 
and deliver political points from the other side. Some of the people you hear on WCPT today originated on Air America, which was supposed to do that and unfortunately was not all that funny. So uh, I know I worked there briefly. It, it was... And this don't don't get me started on my problem with progressives and and humor. I just in our own in our own defense, I think we mean well, but I think a lot of times we're so worried about offending anybody that we just don't dare laugh at anything, and and that's a problem. So that all happened. It moved over to TV, and it moved to streaming. I mean, you may not agree with a single thing Joe Rogan says. I know I don't, but he's entertaining and he can make you laugh sometimes. The people he has on can make you laugh sometimes. And if nobody's around watching you laugh, you may laugh harder. And all of it traces back to the early pioneers of Laugh-In and Tom and Dick Smothers and the courage because now it's just assumed. Now you can go on the internet and say anything you want, even if you think it's funny and the rest of the world is disgusted. Or you can say disgusting things and claim you were trying to be funny. But when the Smothers Brothers did what they did, they opened up electronic media to politics in a way that has been carried forward for decades now. And it really, I don't know if, if you watched the Smothers Brothers the first time around. I was a little too young. It was kind of something that was on in the living room that my parents were watching or caught it on the second go round or the third or just watch it on YouTube. But if you spend a few moments checking out their humor, you will see how subtly and deftly they they made their political points and the courage that they showed. Because really, if if CBS canceled you, talk about your cancel culture, you were canceled. That was it. You weren't going to get another network TV job. And there was no cable. So I wish I, I wish he he could have been with us a little bit longer, but if you want to know whether someone's life made a difference, if Tom Smothers ever wondered whether his life made a difference, anyone who's who had a low draft number in 1972 has uh, in some part the Smothers Brothers to thank for the fact that they got to stay home. And that is a big deal. Really, it is. Um, and I think they came out and did live. I'm trying to remember. I think they did live shows for McGovern, although I could be wrong about that. And, um, yeah, they were active. They were very active. And on stage, you know, that, that stuff was happening. Those of us who, who got into watching Mrs. Maisel, I don't know if you did. But about the, there's a character in there, the Lenny Bruce character, and you you watch him suffer, you watch him with censors, and he lived through a very real time when you couldn't even get up on a stage and say what you wanted to say, and it literally killed him. It really did. There are only so many times you can be arrested for speaking your mind before it starts to get to you. I wonder if there was a comedian who changed your views or made you aware at some point of something you hadn't considered before. 
I can think of a couple of of um, comedians who who really changed my world somewhat. One of them very recently. I know that in the past, Richard Pryor was a big eye opener for a lot of people of all colors, of all races. The person I'm thinking of who shifted my view recently uh, is an Australian comedian, and she is a proud out lesbian. That was that wasn't anything I needed to really learn about, but she's also autistic. And I had thought to myself, well, really, you know, how funny can I mean, what what's funny about being autistic? And she really changed my view about that. And uh, we can talk a little bit more about that. If there's somebody who made you laugh and changed your mind or made you more aware, why don't you uh, send me a little note by text or give me a call, 773-763-WCPT. That's 773-763-9278. We are Chicago's progressive talk station, live, local, and progressive. I'm Turi Ryder, in for Joan Esposito. More in a moment. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Turi Ryder. 2.20, I am Turi Ryder, in until 5 o'clock when Patty Vasquez will drive you home. We're talking a little bit about the... The progress that can be made when someone can make you laugh in light of the fact that we just lost Tom Smothers. His death was announced a couple of hours ago now, and it really made, I'm guessing it made you think, if you remember the Smothers brothers at all, about what a difference they made in their um, in their criticism of Nixon, in their support of people who were um, objecting to the war in Vietnam, in their pointing out that we had a culture of, as we to some extent still do, of of money and uh, business to the exclusion of uh, values like charity and empathy. Um, and all of these things they did on network television, which was really unusual. So uh, I'm, I'm receiving now your messages about who made a difference and who broke barriers for you. Um, thank you for pointing out that Flip Wilson. Yeah, Flip Wilson did some barrier breaking on television. Um, Larry points out that John Oliver, yeah, John Oliver consistently is right up there in people's faces with not, not even a, a, it's more like, it's not a comedy that makes you laugh routine. It's political that points out the, the real absurdity. I don't always agree with Oliver, by the way, but, uh, he has a, a really well researched writing team that, entertains and gives you some laughs along the way and and you laugh in a way because you realize the absurdity of a lot of things we're told we need to take absolutely seriously and you realize how serious some things are that we're just being told are no big deal and to me that's the essence of John Oliver and and why he is wonderful also the fact that everything is really well produced and they throw up load of money at all of the products that they, all the routines they put out. I have not heard a lot of women mentioned. I would say Samantha B does an amazing job of um, making people laugh at, at political things. And then there's the personal. 
the personal of um, Amy Schumer talking about the different expectations we have of women and women's bodies. And why, oh, I promised I would mention the name of the Australian comic, which has now just flown right out of my head. <laughs> uh, Australian autistic lesbian. That's part of her shtick. And it's just she did a whole show with, named after her dog. It will come to me. It will come to me in like the minute that we have to do some business. That's when it will come to me. Um, a mention of, of George Carlin for sure. For sure. And the beauty of George Carlin was he pointed out the cynicism of media and everybody knows the seven words you're not allowed to say, which we're for the most part still not allowed to say. Uh, one of the things that Carlin and I think Lenny Bruce had in common was they pointed out the hypocrisy of bigotry. I still remember Lenny Bruce's routine about people who wouldn't date across racial lines. Um, and, I, and I still remember I, Lenny Bruce saying, oh, yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't date a, a black woman. You'd only date a white woman. Well, well, what if the what if the black woman is Lena Horne? Hannah Gadsby, thank you. Oh my gosh, so many, so many points to Andy today for, for doing all the things I cannot do. Are you a Hannah Gadsby fan, or you just looked her up? She's marvelous, by the way, and and uh, and changed my view of neurodiverse people. I mean, I, I just the, because the way they were always. Uh, and and we know several, but in general, they, they have senses of humor, but constructing a long form comedy routine would not be something I would have expected in my unaware state of people who are neurodiverse with autism. But because of Hannah Gadsby, my world shifted because of Hannah Gadsby. If you watch her your world can shift and you can see the absurdity of a lot of things the way she sees it. And you don't have to be autistic to appreciate the the, the strangeness of some things. She opens one show with feedback from an audience. And I, she, is, she is proud and obviously uh, a lesbian who presents as what in clothing that would more traditionally be associated with men, although there's no reason why that should be. And and she reads a complaint letter from a lesbian in the audience who felt that her show did not have enough lesbian content. And then she just stands there for a moment. Like, she is the lesbian content. How much more lesbian content? And you start to realize so many things about the expectations people have of groups that are in the minority or have a different way of expressing themselves. And that was a gift. Indirectly descended, I would say, from the Smothers Brothers. That was that was another of their gifts to us. I I had not realized and uh reading the sometimes did a lovely bio on Tom Smothers how many times they tried to recapture that magic of their show in the 60s and they they got several other opportunities and they never went well and I never saw enough of those shows I don't know maybe you saw them to um to understand why they did or did not work. They seemed to be gone before you might even have been aware that they were on. But sometimes sometimes something is great because it is of a time. 
sometimes something has meaning because it is just the right thing at the right time. And then some things transcend. I mean, media that transcends, for example, it's a wonderful life. The movie, it's, it seems to be evergreen. It seems to transcend every era in which it is watched. The humor stays humorous. The meaning stays meaningful. And sometimes it cycles around. A lot of political consultants have been pointing out that the humor and the jokes that were made about Nixon, um, some of them translate horrifyingly well to Donald Trump. Although if you look at the reality of the two presidencies, they were very, very different. So my memorial to Tom Smothers and a, and a, and a gratitude, a gratitude wish that we all have an opportunity to expand our view of the world with laughter. That's, I think, the best way to do it. 228, we are live local and progressive. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan Esposito. In a moment, we we were talking yesterday about uh, the buses being shuttled from the suburbs to the city, specifically another couple of busloads of um, migrants who came through Texas uh, being d- discharged at the metro station in Elmhurst. Uh, and a couple of people asked, what what can we actually do? In a moment, you'll meet somebody who can, who does, and will tell you how on WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet. Well, I hope you feel that way about it. It's a pleasure to be here for Joan. Uh, Joan is taking some vacation time. She will be back on the 8th, I believe, of January. Rested, fluffed, ready to go. And I'm here until that time. Also in for Edwin Eisendraff on Saturday from 1 to 4. Yesterday, we did... We did spend a little time talking about the buses that are just leaving people in the suburbs and the plane we talked about last week. It it seems the hits just keep coming of Governor Abbott treating migrants as though they are packages, inhuman packages. And it was deeply upsetting to a lot of folks listening, and they wanted to know what could they do. Here is someone who does. Her name is Katarina Koch. She... um, she will tell you herself now what she does, why she does it. Welcome to WCPT, Katarina. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Tell me how you first got involved in assisting the migrants who were arriving in Chicago. Um, well, it was over Facebook. I'm a mother of two children, and um, there was a mass Facebook group. And somebody else who was already involved was like, this is a great opportunity. You cook a meal, you bring it to the police station, to people waiting there. You can bring your kids along and they can learn what service means. And I did that. And then the first time I was, um, I wanted to bring a meal. I volunteered for the station on Pulaski in Albany Park. That's uh, District 17. And people had just been picked up. So I had a meal, and then I asked, can I bring it somewhere else? And that's how I got connected to the volunteer team at Jefferson Park in District 16. And then I stayed there, and we expanded that volunteer 
organization in that area. Wow, that that is a good story. How many of you are in your circle of volunteers right now, and and where are you bringing your help now that the police stations have been mostly um, cleared of people and those folks have been moved, I I gather, to shelters? It's a complicated question, but start wherever you like. That's correct. Um, So some of us are taking a break. Um, Many of us are still connected um, to the last kind of groups that we've had who've been moving on to shelters. Um, And so they might still be helping them providing at shelters. Um, Shelters are notoriously slow or incapable of providing sufficient clothing, um, and especially winter clothing, and people are still arriving from buses and T-shirts and shorts. Um, So very often um, there are a couple of volunteers who are going to the different shelters where we have connections and um, bringing um, clothes, winter clothes. Um, And that's kind of like... It's, it's like a clandestine operation. Um, we are have no access to the shelters. Volunteers are not allowed. And um, that's probably also to keep migrants safe or people who are sheltering safe. Um, but it means that we meet in parking lots or nearby corners and, and then do handovers of, of um, stuff. That's, so that's amazing. One thing. That's like, I mean, that's kind of drug dealer stuff. Like, psst, psst, want a pair of wool socks? Here, here you go. A pair of wool socks. I mean, that you got to feel kind of weird doing that. No. Um, I, I think it stopped feeling weird a long time ago. Ah. Like, like feeding people and helping people to get comfortable on the floor of a police station. That was weird. And then that stopped being weird. So nothing is weird anymore, I think. What or at least interesting <laughs> observation. It starts out where you think this is an absurd situation and then you do it yeah. long enough and you and it no longer feels absurd. That that no, is and, and, insightful. I'm sorry, please continue. And so and another thing, um, because I mean it also meant for us, even though some of us got connected um because we heard about migrants, but that also meant that we got in contact with existing homeless population or unhoused population in Chicago. And, of course, we would also provide them with blankets or medication or food. Um, And um, so I think a few have also pivoted um, towards um, supporting the unhoused if they didn't get into this because they were already supporting the unhoused. Um, And um, there is this initiative, Bring Chicago Home, that um, quite a few are now um, supporting um, that initiative. And then another branch, I would say, that has existed is um, that people, there's this Facebook group, um, Refugee Community Connection, um, helping at police stations kind of grew out of it because um, Refugee Community Connection has for many, many years, for six years, um, been helping migrants settle in in Chicago, migrants from all kinds of places in the world. And um, they had kind of their finger on the pulse and that were the first ones that realized that people are police stations and then are waiting. And then out of that, this movement grew or this volunteer action at the police stations grew. And some of have moved back to um, helping for refugee community connection where we're now when people find housing, help them to get the basic furnishings in their basic household supplies, um, 
helping with how to access the different um, the different systems that are out there, how to use public transport in order to get to an ah, appointment or something like that. That is important. So you mentioned that you uh, wanted your kids to understand what being of service was. Do you talk with your kids about what they're seeing and what, what are some of the things that they've said to you about their observations of the community? I think the starkest one was the first time, like one of the first times uh, when we went. Um, So my daughter's four and my son is eight. And my son came with me that time and we handed out food. And there were three families and um, there were a couple of girls. And the parents, I asked the parents for clothing sizes um, so that I could help them maybe with some clothes. And, And Liam observed that there are four in why are they all so much smaller than my sister? Ah. And, and I mean, a lot of the population or a large number of the population is coming from Venezuela. And we've known that Venezuela has been going through an economic crisis that in some areas has really created a crisis of, of malnutrition, especially in children. Um, and I mean, I'm not, I did not always dive deep into the personal stories of the people because it's very urgent and very immediate work. And I wanted to be able to continue doing that. But, um, you get those little narratives in your head about that. And so, yeah. Let me pause you for a moment. You said, you said you didn't want to hear the stories because they were so, I I didn't follow that. What, what were you explaining about those stories and now you didn't want to know more the global story? Please explain. Um, I when when I met migrants at the police stations, there yes. were usually very urgent needs, yes. and I wanted to address those first. I and see. I didn't want to um, become you know, overwhelmed by maybe some background story that then would not make it possible for me to help anymore. I see. Um, knowing that every day new families would arrive and every day I, uh, we would have to organize food and clothing and basics. And so, um, but uh, some of the stories I, I got them later. Um, but for that moment, like I can't tell you whether those girls were not that day, but there was really a story of malnutrition in the background. I see. I see. I understand now. You, it, it, to to avoid getting just overwhelmed, it's important to focus on the immediate task before you give the meal, um, provide the jacket. Um, are are uh-huh. you following up? You mentioned the last group you're sort of keeping in touch with. Do you get any success stories handed back through the refugee group you're working with? I mean, do you hear so-and-so has got a work permit? So-and-so has an apartment? So-and-so has located a family member who is bringing them to live with them? Are you hearing any of those sorts of anecdotes? Yes, we do. Um, there was a family room at MA. Um, that was one of the background stories. Um, three children, the family had decided that they they left with all three children, but then on the way they had to leave the two oldest ones because they were running out of money. Ah. And so as we got to know the, the family, we got to know that there were two sons still waiting um, en route. And so we know now that they're in an apartment here. All family members are reunited. Um, so that is a wonderful story. Um, but those are some of the hard moments when you're like, oh, God, if I think about this too long, I'm going to sit down crying and not be able to think. Sure. Um, 
and so um, we also had sometimes family reun- reunions at the station. I remember one time I met a father and a son, and I just kept thinking, there must be a mother I'm not going to ask. I don't want to know the story. And then, fortunately, a few days later, I get the information that the mother is being flown in from, from a different place in, in the U.S., and we were able to reunite that family right then and there. Oh, that's lovely. Um, and so those were some of the some of the good stories um, that we've gotten, yes. I'm glad to hear that. Um, I was interested, in light of the fact that you were bringing meals, I forget which publication it was, um, that was that was following some of the families in the shelter system, and I was shocked to hear that they said the food was inedible. And I thought that that is so strange. I mean, how can that be that you're feeding a community? They said it was too spicy. And I mm-hmm. are they trying to like wipe people? How hard is it not to put in spice if people can't eat it? I, are you hearing back that it's getting better for people in the shelters? Are the shelters being responsive? Or are people still sort of suffering and, you know, like this will keep me from dying, but I'm, I'm really wretched here. And, and do you hear it's, anything? It's really, no, it's super frustrating. Um, and it's the same. It's been the same story since I've heard anything about that. I think it started in March with moldy ham in the inner Chicago. I think that was a widely publicized story. Um, and with every shelter that opened, we usually heard that food is not good. Um, I want to shout out Chai Cares, um, which is an organization that has been helping with providing food at the police stations, especially once we reached more than 80, 90 people at the police station, which just was a different scope of providing food. Sure. Um, and I know that Chai Cares also has also provided food at some of the shelters. And I I'm not quite sure how it's continuing. I'm hope that I'm, I'm hoping that the city has learned from this experience that you can get local food vendors um, that have been proven to do a wonderful job connected and and in there, um, and also support the local economy through that. Um, yes. And I um, no, but the the stories are still not good. Um, we still, I mean, we've heard about the Halstead shelter. Um, there is no milk for the kids. We know how important milk is. Everyone who has a child knows that the pediatrician keeps telling you, right, full-fat yeah. milk that many times a day to support the growth. And we know that there is a children population that desperately would need that. Um, and so, no, we continue hearing stories about not food that's not enough, food that isn't balanced enough, food that is um, not edible, Um and one of the things, uh, when Wright College opened over the summer, a lot of volunteers from D16 helped out there, too. And one of the things we did was food, pop- food pop-ups, um, like uh, every week or a second, um, so that people would have a meal to look forward to. Oh, that's lovely. So at this point, when you cook, are you cooking for with a group? Are you cooking in a commercial kitchen? Are you cooking at home? Are you cooking for 10 people, for 30 or 40? How does that work? Um, when at the moment we're not cooking, one of the things that, um, is still happening, um, is at one of the churches across from D16, um, Friendship, who has been incredibly uh, helpful. They are offering their commercial kitchen and, um, 
their space for an ESL, like dinner in an ESL class. Um, and so that is still happening. And um, very often different groups that have been cooking have also been trying to fold migrants in. Um, so um, one other wonderful church, um, the Shepherd of the Heart, I want to say, um, they would ask, they would come to the police station, ask people who would like to cook, would go grocery shopping with them, and then they would make a traditional meal that they would then eat and enjoy. Where would and they so do? that was a lovely thing. If they're in the police stations, yeah. where are you cooking? Are you like doing a barbecue outside or is somebody, oh, they, you bring them to the church and they cook there? How does that happen? Yes, they brought them, they brought them to the church and then they cook there. Oh, that must yeah. feel so good to be able to cook for your family for the first time in who knows how long and your community, mm-hmm. too. That, and the yeah. extra bonus is people learn how to navigate American shopping centers, which can be really confusing. <laughs> I think yeah. anytime no, you're in a different lovely. country, it's it's hard to figure out what to buy where. Yeah. Uh, so we, we really try to do that, too. I mean... Just bringing food in was the first priority, but if um, then group felt like they were able to do something this meaningful and add on, this was always wonderful and welcomed. And um, I, I personally haven't yet figured out for myself where I fit in. I'm kind of eyeing the the idea of um, being what is called a lead volunteer for a family that resettled in my neighborhood and then maybe supporting them for two or three months with needed items and um, some basic orientation um, in Chicago. Um, but it was a very busy and intense six months um, from March till, yeah, end of November now. I think that was more than six months. Um, and, yeah, I'm trying to take a breath and I, I can imagine a bit on my family. Yeah, it's the holiday and, and uh, for some people and they, they want to just nest a little bit and that makes perfect sense. You have to sort of gather your wits and strength about you if you want to go out and do it again. And it sounds like from what you're describing, um, clothing, winter clothing is really what's needed. And you've mentioned a few places and I will I will ask actually if if uh, we can hang on with you after our interview so maybe Andy can write down some of these websites and I'll I'll put them on my social media so people can can find a connection that way. As you were speaking yesterday, we had uh, the Alder from the Thirty Second Ward, Scott Wagesback, talk about the disorganized mm-hmm. reception of the mm-hmm. of the refugees, and and it it strikes me as you are speaking. That in a weird, horrible way, the fact that Chicago's city response was so disorganized left opportunities for individuals to intervene and supply help in a way that might not have been permitted if it was all systematic. They, they might have been able to say, no, 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 we got that all handled. You know, you go away, write a check. Um, but the, the fact that it, it, the need was so great and so immediate and there was no city response enabled you to just show up with a, you know, a, a big pan of spaghetti and meatballs or whatever you were cooking. Is that... That was one of the meals. 
<laughs> was it? Oh, good. I'm glad I figured that out. Lots of pasta. That's that's what I lived on when I was a college student. Lots of pasta. So, um, is it is it true that 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 you you sensed that you could do whatever was needed? There was no barrier there. Nobody was saying no. You can't help in this way. You. I know that when I went to volunteer at my kids' public school, they practically wanted a blood test before I could bring books for the library. I and mean, it's that security conscious and that heavy on the screening, did you feel like it was more of a porous membrane for you to come and help? Or uh, are there now more security systems in check? Or how, how does that feel now? It definitely did disrupt that usual pattern when of, of a segregation, right? Um, and that you that you get an influx of people and they're being put into shelters and very very dense populated small places, and it and that in itself often creates a barrier, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so by by having like ten, fifteen, twenty people dispersed in twenty three different police stations, um, that makes it more accessible, I guess. Yes, and it was definitely something that the mantra that kept us going as a group was it doesn't matter whether we are getting this right or perfect um, because nothing would be done anyway. So there's nothing we can, we can destroy at this point. Um, We can just try to build something that is maybe functional. Now, the thing is there's still, I think a lot of work that can be done and I think it would be very wise also from an integration point of view to get to harness that volunteer energy that is in the city and get people connected um, and get programming uh, maybe at the shelters um, that can happen, maybe not just a community room in a shelter that volunteers can access and not more like, right. That this can be maybe on the outside security boundaries or whatever. Like I understand that you don't want a bunch of volunteers walking through a shelter. There are fears of um, human trafficking and those are valid. Sure. Yes. Um, so, but the things like that get people connected because we know how crucial that is in order to foster an integration into society. Um, so what, and, what are you, let me ask you, what specifically are you thinking? Are you thinking like art projects for the kids or music performances or like what, what specifically would be happening in these community rooms with the volunteers and the, and the, uh, and the migrants? I mean, a specific need would be particularly English classes. Uh, and I think families, families have the advantage to the kids once the kids are in school. Yes. I mean, that's something phenomenal about American schools is that they're doing so much more, right? Um, they're than, than just learning taking place. And there are so many programs in schools um, that are also designed to support the entire community, uh, the entire family. Um, so I think the families, once the kids are in school, then the schools can be one of those connecting places, integrating places. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... Things that worry me personally a little bit more are um, single adults, especially single males, uh-huh. um, that are also being like, you know, hundreds and hundreds in a small size. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that 20 to 30 year old single man or single man of color is something that America is 
very often afraid of. Yes. And especially if you don't have a way to communicate. And um, But I think the energy that drives these young men is usually to provide and to prove to the world that they are worthy and that they are men. And so just give them the tools. I think there is a huge energy that if it were put in the right direction, steered, steered in the right direction, you know, this could be our next group of entrepreneurs. And I know that one of the, I think the social club, uh, one of the libraries nearby is just now starting ESL classes. And I think, uh, which is targeting the population at the social club, and which I think is a wonderful idea. This is exactly the kind of stuff that needs to happen. That's a good so idea. Let, let me ask you. Um, to ask the libraries, yeah. yeah <laughs> the libraries, I, I love your enthusiasm about all this and all your many ideas. Um, is there about an equal number of women and men volunteering? Because listening to you, it sounds as though mm. we could use more uh, men volunteering in these yeah. places to, to for lots of reasons. Does that seem like a, an accurate statement? Absolutely. Because in the end, it's one of those caretaking things, right, that are female coded. Right. Right. Women take care of people. Women right. feed people. And so, uh, but, so, but for these young men, um, it would be it would be helpful for them to have uh, some men show up to volunteer to explain at the most basic level how you provide as a man in America. I mean, they want to do that, as you've just said, and we've heard consistently from these folks. They want to work. They want to bring their families or send money home. Uh, they want to educate their children. And, and it would be helpful, I would imagine, if, if a lot of this information and messaging were coming from men. So um, how do you encourage men to participate in this? And like right now, I think we've are especially in an advocacy place, um, continue for you like dignified ways in, in shelters. Um one of the great successes I think in all of these months was the push for T P and TPS temporary protective status. Yes. Um for immigrants who arrived before July thirty first. And I do believe but don't quote me on this, um, that it is restricted to Venezuelans. Yes, I, I um, think that's and, true. I believe you are right. I mean, there yeah. were earlier groups who came. There were Haitians who had it, lost it, got it back. But I believe this current group, uh, and there's a movement to extend the time period. Correct. But I believe that that is still strictly um, targeted to Venezuelans. And is that mostly who you saw in, in the police stations? I would say definitely that was the, the majority of people. And I know that there are clinics for this, um, for this application process. And every day from five, uh, from eight in the morning until 5 p.m. during the week. And so volunteering for that, if you're bilingual, um, I know a couple of people who have volunteered um, and they're just helping legal staff um, getting the paperwork in order, getting it filled out um and so there's somebody with the legal expertise and just doing kind of like the clerk work well, of getting that stuff as done. As someone who has a terrible time with forms, I, I appreciate the value of that. And I know we also yeah. heard from uh, a doctor who was organizing her residence to come through and, and do things yeah. as well. So I think we'll, we'll leave it there except to say, is, is there anything that you just wanted to communicate in the last moment or two that we have together that, to, to yeah. anyone who might be considering participating? 
I think uh, I want to share one what not to do. I know that many at the moment, many migrants are hanging out in front of stores. Yes. Do not take them home. They're losing their shelter space and then they're losing their access to social services. If you want to connect to an immigrant family, do that, but have them stay at shelter and there is a way to like, you can sign them out for a night. If you want to have them home for a night, that's something that works. But don't just take them home and have them lose their spot. That would be really, really devastating um, because being in the shelter, even though I've talked about the bad food and less access, it can mean for many access to housing vouchers for three months, access to medical care. Um, so... So don't take them home. Okay. Find a different way. Okay. Contact, connect with them. Yes. Find out what to do next. But I see a couple of cases where people just take them ho- home in that moment. And I understand the gesture, gesture, but then it might really mean that disconnect from, well, and, from that. And they're strangers. I mean, and, and to be, yeah. to be fair to everyone here, their need is great and we have much. And sometimes that's almost a stumbling block before people. You just, you know, it's it's almost more than a person can bear, and you may you may have somebody living with you for a really 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 long time, longer than you'd planned. Exactly. All right, well, thank so you. You need to be prepared for that. Be, be yes. prepared because <laughs> the need is great, and we we have more than we think we have. Katarina, thank you so much. That's Katarina Koch. Uh, hang on, and we'll get the information of where people can connect, and we'll try and put that up. I'll put that on my social media if people want to help. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. It's a minute before 3 o'clock. Joan Esposito, show to rewriter in for Joan. Live local, progressive, WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Turi Ryder. Just about 3.05. I am Tori Ryder. Welcome back. This may be the start of your working week. A lot of folks took a couple extra days around their holiday. And so you're getting back in the groove. You're looking at your inbox. And maybe you took a little break from thinking politics. But now it's right in your face again. And in the case of ranked choice voting, it's right next door. Because there's been movement in the state of Wisconsin towards ranked choice voting. We've talked a little bit about ranked choice voting in the past and what it would look like if we did it in Illinois. But it's going to happen in Wisconsin. To talk about it and give us a little bit of insight, uh, Judith Crown reports for Crane's Chicago Business publication I truly love, by the way. And uh, she's going to join us now to talk about what what is happening with our neighbors in our, in our Mr. Rogers world. Won't they won't they be our ranked choice neighbors? Welcome, Ms. Crown. Thanks for joining us on WCPT. Yes. Hi. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Well, so what exactly for for those of us who don't really look north that often? What's happening up there in Wisconsin? They got a new judge. They're getting new uh, voting districts. Um, they, they're all kinds of things are cooking along up there and ranked choice voting. What, what's new up there? Right. Well, my understanding is that they have been interested in ranked choice and final four voting because the woman behind final four, Catherine Gale, are you familiar with her? I've She's heard, been like a real. Heard the name. She's an activist for participating in the processes. I understand it. 
Right, right. And there's there's right choice voting and final four or final five voting where um, there's an it's, it's, it goes beyond ranked choice. The idea is you eliminate the partisan primary and you have an open field and the top four or five advance to the general election. Ah. And the thinking there, the thinking there is very interesting because the idea is right now our primaries are so partisan and you get very extreme candidates and there, but the, the, the turnout is very slow, right? It could be five or 10%. Yes. And then those officials end up really governing with, with that base in mind instead of the general electorate. Well, absolutely. You can see that writ large in the in the efforts of the Republican Party to unseat Donald Trump as their nominee. And the, the most extreme people figured they'd have a shot. And in the end, the guy who embodies the most extreme is, in fact, um, going to succeed, not because he's in favor with the historic Republicans, but because he appeals right. to the base. So that that's a way that what you're describing plays out. It's the activist voters who vote in the primaries, and then everyone right. else is sort of stuck with what they picked for us. It's kind of like exactly. if you went to dinner and the person with, with the most um, wild taste in food ordered for you and all of a sudden sitting on your plate is frog's legs and you're like i don't like well that's too bad i you the whole choice you could have come and voted on the whole menu but you didn't so we picked the frog legs and now that's what you're gonna eat so with apologies to anybody who loves frog's legs i i wouldn't i have (laughs) no idea i would any frog leg that came near me would be at the end of a 10 foot pole which would be the only way i would touch it right but but I think we're, we're talking about the same thing here. What's interesting yes. about what you're describing is I, I have my own problems, by the way, with ranked choice voting. I lived in Oakland, California. We had ranked choice voting and a lot of people would uh-huh. pitch their candidate as the second choice. And so very often people get the second choice. So you don't get the frog's legs. You, you get the gruel. Um but but this sounds really interesting because it eliminates the nut buckets and then everybody gets to exactly. sort of pick a middle of the road. It, is that how it, it is? Yes. It would would Could that go wrong somehow? How could that go wrong if so? Well, so, you know, this this is now uh, being used in Alaska. So Alaska was the first state to use final for voting. And it was done in in 22 when uh, they, with the death of their longtime representative, Don Young. Yes. So they call a special election and there were about 48 candidates. And there were a few Republicans, including Sarah Palin, the uh, former former governor and vice presidential candidate. Um, But what happened was a a Native American and a Democrat one named Mary Peltola. And she's very popular and she won and went on. She won the special election and then she won. You know, there were there was out of the 48. There were like four advanced to the general election. Mary Peltola won the special election and then she won the general election. And she's very popular. Um, She's very bipartisan. Um, she's she's supported by Lisa Murkowski, who's a moderate Republican. I think doesn't and she call Sarah, herself an independent now, Murkowski? I I think or no? 
she's she's still technically a Republican. I think I believe so. Oh, but I re- wait. I remember what happened. They primaried her once, and she ran as an yes. a, a, yeah as a write-in. That's what happened right. to her. Right. right. I knew there was something. Yeah. So okay. So yeah. they got rid of Sarah Palin. I, I realize this is charged language, and you're a journalist, and you're not you don't necessarily say got rid of Sarah Palin. But as far as I'm concerned, she, the, the further the better. If she can see Russia from her house, I wish she would just go there. Um, but she she uh, was not among the final four. What about I was I was surprised. Was, I'm sorry, she was, she was. was final four. But she was defeated because the Republicans split the vote and Mary Mary Peltola was very popular. So she ended up beating Sarah Palin in that final four runoff. Would this have happened, do you think, if they had done it the the old fashioned two party, maybe a third party on the ballot way or no? No, because then you'd have one, you know, one from each. Maybe you'd have Sarah Palin versus Mary Peltola and then. You know, you don't have the vote splitting. It, you know, it's really hard to say because there was this long period. Mary Peltola got to be known in Alaska, and um, and you know, she she was on the right side of the issue. You, we think of of Alaska as very uh, conservative, but the issues there, you know, uh, energy, environment, you know, they care about their local issues, and, and Mary Peltola was just very strong on that, and you know. More so than than what Sarah, you know, the, sort of more the identity politics that Sarah Palin was was playing. So what were the, that's how it, What were the other two candidates um, a factor here in, in siphoning off some other views? Yes. That who were the other candidates and how did they help Mary Peltoa win? Yeah, they were other. Uh, I forget their names, but they were other prominent Alaska Republicans. You know, and sort of in some prominent families. Ah. So, um, you know, they definitely they were well known, but they kind of split the Republican vote. Ah. So that was definitely. So, in in effect, the fact that it's in general a heavily Republican state, the Democrat was helped by the fact that there were so many different kinds of Republicans that made it to the final yeah. four. Is is this yeah. now? Wisconsin, circling back to our neighbor north, um, is is right. less of a, a red state and more of a purple state, um, which right. is with, without the gerrymandering, it might be a little more a little more blue, a little less red, and that may change. But in the statewide races, um, typically the statewide victors are often Democrats. So how would this final four, which is which is what they're going for, final four, as opposed to just ranked choice? I have to my understanding of this is their early stage. So Catherine, very interesting story. So Catherine Gale is a businesswoman. Her family had a, a food company in Wisconsin, and she ran it for a number of years and then eventually sold it. But she became very interested in this idea and said, you know, the politics, it's so polarized. In business, we would not hire, <laughs> you know, we would not hire people like this, right? They uh-huh. would pass, you know, the committee. Right. And we, we need to, you know, we need to have some higher standards for the people we're hiring. And she wrote a book. She teamed with uh, a, a Harvard a Harvard academic and wrote a book about the politics industry. And she, she sold her business, the family business and has used some of that money 
to launch what she is called the the campaign for final five voting. The campaign is actually based here in the Chicago area, but she's active in Wisconsin and she's very active in Nevada. But these things take a long time of educate. You know, it's it's really grassroots, right? Because you have to explain this stuff. So it's very much like chicken dinner, family, you know, getting families together and explaining the process and, and why it's needed. So that's, that's what's so going my understanding of what's going on in Wisconsin. Um, it, Illinois, she and Catherine is not a fan of rank choice per se. She says, you know, that doesn't go far. You know, rank choice is good in some respects, but final five uses a combination of final five and ranked choice because you, you get to the, um, you have your big field, then the top four or five advance, and then they you use a ranked choice system to get to the winner. That would so she, be less susceptible, I would imagine, to people screwing around with it. Like if you had just some complete wackadoodle running and a bunch of people, as a joke, voted for that person as their second choice, you could end up with the wackadoodle. Right. Yeah. Right. But if you have four and they've already been pre-sifted, like the flour, pre-sifted, right. um, then you then you have something you can bake with. You can – what is it with me in the food? I must be hungry. Um <laughs> So, so that would that would make more sense. And if is this um, group that that uh, Mary, you said her name is, has founded? Is this um, the the food? What what is her name again? I'm sorry. I, oh, again, Gail. Gail. H-L. Catherine Gale. Catherine yes. Gale. Um, is, yeah. is is this a nonprofit that she's started? Yes, it's a nonprofit. She's very interesting. She's raised. She has her own funds, but she's raised money from from folks on different sides of the aisle, including uh, Ken Griffin, who we know. Yes, you know, we do. Oh, yes, we certainly, do. <laughs> certainly, a right of center. Um, you would say, um, politic, polit, um, well, businessman. Yes, and Lynn, the LinkedIn founder, um, Ree Hoffman who is definitely aligned with democratic causes. Yes. So she would argue, you know, we have bipartisan support and that there are people interested in this on, on both sides. Have you interviewed any of those backers? And if so, what do they say about their interest in this final five, final four process? I did not interview either, either of those uh, gentlemen, but um, you know, it, it, it it is. Some people say it is bipartisan, but it's not clear. Um, we had in the in the crane section, we had a, a a poll, a Harris poll, and they did a Cook County residents, and they kind of said probably a little bit more support in ranked choice among liberals and Democrats than than conservatives. But you know, oh, well, I'm just going to say that's because we're smarter. That's that's what I'm going to say. I'm just going to choose to say that. You don't have to agree with me, but that's just because if it works in my favor, then I'll, I'll go with that explanation. Um, I mean, this is I. By the way, I am the token regular Democrat on the on the station here, um, which my my husband says compared to the rest of the staff here, I'm the closet Republican, and then I make him leave the room. But if if you okay. say that most of the 
of the supporters are on the Democratic moderate side. Um, to what would a person who's not um, who's not making fun of the fact that they're not as bright as we are? What what would a kinder person say about that? You mean what? Like why is it? Yeah, why aren't why the Republicans interested in this process? What what is that about? It should be. I think the Republicans should be interested in this in Illinois because it kind of opens up the field, yes. right? When we have, we're in in Illinois, the, the, often the primary is the deciding, uh, right? Is the deciding uh, election, and yes. then the um, the regular election is not a you know a non story. But really, if you had a different type of system, you know, a more open field, then then we um, the Republicans would have a chance in the general election, right? You could have in a final five situation, you could have a, a few Republicans, a few Democrats, the top vote getters advance to the general election. And then, you know, they might have a shot if it was a charismatic candidate uh, and, and it wouldn't be like, to prove to prove how yeah. it could serve them. You need look no further than to, to glance back at the last election for governor, where our governor Pritzker just sort of cynically, threw a bunch of money behind the, the, the loopiest and hard rightest of all the candidates. Right. And if there right. were a system like that, you would either he would just be one of five or else the governor would have to spend a whole lot more money, um, which might be interesting. Right. Um, but it, that is, is what you're saying, that in a scenario where five or four people are going to make it to the, the final rank choice ballot, you wouldn't be able to weigh it quite so heavily just by throwing your money behind one wackadoodle. You would have to either right. pick a whole lot of wackadoodles or throw, I don't know, you couldn't, it, it would be less vulnerable, I suppose, is what you're saying. Is that yeah. accurate? The proponents really want, they said, the winner should, the general election to be the either. I mean, they all kind of agree on that, right? Because they have, that is the broadest pool that's going to be the most democratic result. So everybody go to the general election and that should be the decider. And then if you have a ranked choice, you know, you can take care of it. Then you don't need a runoff. You don't need, you know, a second, a second election that, that, so it should be kind of an efficient system. So it seems like the only downside is instead of ranked choice or what some people call instant runoff, I believe, if if right. you, if you right. still have the final five, you still have the cost of running to elections. But people are sort of used to that anyway. Um, is there any but it's kind really of not, yes? I'm sorry. You don't have you don't have a partisan primary anymore. So really, there's one primary and one general. So you really are cutting back the number of elections because you don't have a Republican and then a separate Democratic primary. Ah, I think in some states you just it's all the primaries on one date. You just pick your ballot. I want this party ballot. Yes, I I don't I don't know how that would necessarily then save money if everybody's still voting on the same day. What am I missing? But and the by the way the um, the parties are against this. So we we wrote about Nevada where there's a really strong uh, a movement for a final four or five, and Catherine Gale has contributed to that effort. There's a um, there's a committee called a political action committee mm-hmm. called Nevada Voters 
first. And it's it's taken hold in Nevada because they have a, a big chunk of, of independents, about 40 percent, and they can't vote in the primary. True. So they have a very uh, interesting movement, but the both parties are way against it. And, and the senator, both senators, uh, Democratic senators have, have said no, an open primary would be too onerous for voters and complicate the process. So, we're, we're just simple I, folk. We can't figure that out. That's that's their argument that we're too dumb to, to make a decision amongst well, a field well, of 40 people. Is that really what they're saying? Nicely, of course. That's what a lot of people are saying. And, you know, it's, it carries some logic in some way because people are saying, yeah, look, any change is going to be difficult to comprehend. Uh, people, And this is true for both ranked choice and final four. They say, oh, it's confusing. There are more people on the ballot. I have to be educated. You know, I have to do more research. So that's an argument that's really being widely used, that it will just confuse people. For example, now Oak Park had, this came before the village board um, just a few months ago. And, you know, they, um, advocates like the League of Women Voters wanted it to go to a referendum. But in the end, like, the the trustees were skittish and said it is confusing. Um, So we're there to wait. There's actually a state task force working on this. So they want to wait to see what the task force comes up with. You know, Evanston... Evanston passed this. Yes, you know, yes. We invited we, we invited their mayor, but he was not able to come. Right. But yes, Evanston is going to do this. Right. And even Evanston, when they work through them, you know, if, if it's going to fly anywhere, it's going to fly in Evanston. But uh, even there, the trustees were, you know, concerned about possible confusion and will people know what to do and, you know, will it keep some people away? Will they throw their hands up and say, I don't know what to do? So there is this sort of concern about disenfranchisement. Well, to be fair, to be fair, um, you see some of this in the judges' races in Chicago, where, I don't yeah. know, you know, you've got 40 judges races, and, and of course, you're not going to know who all these people are. And you can go in with uh-huh. your list, the Bar Association, the Chicago Lawyers, you can go in with yeah. your list of people who are qualified, not qualified, but it does require a little something extra. And I, I will confess that once I left my list at home, and I had to guess, yeah. and it was very upsetting yeah. to me. And I can just right. see in a field of, uh, you said Alaska had over 40 candidates. What if yes. you forgot yes. your list? You could really screw up. Um, right. You could vote right. for some white supremacist without even realizing it. It you don't could happen. To, oh, you don't rank everyone. I mean, that's one misunderstanding. Is like you wouldn't have to wrote, write, you know, rank all 48. You right. know, you can just, hey, I... I know five, and I'm going to rank the five I know. And probably the ones you know have, you know, a little more broader appeal and are probably more the more serious candidates. Too. Well, are they allowed to say, like, vote for, does it say on, on your ballot, vote for five or vote for ten? Or how does that work? I think it usually, and again, this is, I mean, it's certainly new here, and it would be new in Illinois. Yes. But I think you, as, you can rank as many as are on the ballot. So you could rank, if there are five, you could rank all five. I guess you could rank all 48. I guess that's a day off work. But, 
Yeah, right. Bring a lunch. You'll be ranking from morning till five o'clock. <laughs> right. I, I can just admit that I would, th- you know, if that were required, I think a lot of people would go, you know what, forget it. I, I just, I'll go get a happy meal and call it a day. I think I'm, I, maybe that's, that's just a little cynical of right? me. What do you that's think? Well, and that's why I'm cool about the final five, because then it really, it brings the, the most serious candidates to the, to the top, and the people who want to go to the primary, you know, may be more informed, and you know, the best candidate should rise to the top. And then, by the time you get to the general election, and there's only four or five, then it should be pretty clear. Yes. Right? there'll be a lot more publicity, a lot more coverage, yes. and it should be. And you know, ideally, you'll have two Republicans, two two Democrats, and an independent. I mean, that would sort of that's the sort of the ideal situation. But uh, well, it depends where it is. How often? I mean, you could be how often do you wind up with the yeah. ideal situation? Really, in real life, I mean, odds of that slim. But I do appreciate that you have spelled this all out for us, and so we should be watching Evanston. And what's next in Wisconsin? Are are they? Oh, one point, Evanston. Though this isn't interesting. So the the election is not until um, of twenty five, but they have. Um, they they need new software, and that's controlled by Cook County. Oh. And so it's a, it's a little bit of mystery here because we don't know how this is going to work. Is Cook County going to change Evanston's system? You know, we asked Cook County for a comment, and they said no details have been determined at this point. So mm. I think there's a little bit of tension there as to how smoothly, is, you know, is there what kind of investment is needed and do they, you know, is it going to happen in time, all of that? Well, that could go either way. Either it's going to be a big disaster or it'll go smoothly and then other cities and towns will be able to say, look, you, you did this. It wasn't that hard. We want to try it, too. Thank you so much for spending time explaining this whole thing to us, Ms. Crown. I am so grateful for your reporting and your publication and your your wit and willingness to, to put all that behind explaining this uh, effort to us. And I think we'll all be watching to see because heaven only knows the, the process needs a little attention here. And we're getting some people on our ballots where you just, if I hear one more person say, I'm going to hold my nose. Um, and I have been a nose holder. I have. And I would have appreciated not having to, to vote that way. It's it's difficult to, to do that little computer yeah. screen while you hold your nose. So thank you so much. And I hope we get to talk again. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. Happy New Year. And to you. That was Judith Crown of Crane Chicago's Business explaining what may be coming your way, already coming your way if you're an Evanstonian with uh, Final Five and Ranked Choice voting. It's just about 3.30. Uh, in a moment, what what happens to all the shelter pets and what happens to all the, the pets waiting for adoption over the holidays? It's a little bit of a tricky thing for the animal rescue organizations to maneuver. And we're going to find out how they're maneuvering it um, in a moment on WCPT, live, local, and progressive, the Joan Esposito Show. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Why, yes, I am filling in for Joan Tory with a U, rider like the truck. You can find me on most of the socials, although I've, I'm having a personal little snit at uh, the muskiness. 
So I'm avoiding the X where I can. I just want to take a moment to thank Andy, who is making all the tech stuff happen, and Julia, who is on vacation, but who helped oodles, as they used to say when I was a kid. How much oodles? Um, from, from, from voting to fostering. We're going to make an, a hard left here and get warm and fuzzy and talk a little bit about how animals that need homes can be attended to over the winter holiday when so many people leave or or kind of hunker down with their families and these animals need attention all the time. Joining us now, Terry Buckley of Tinley Park Paws. That's our wonderful support. Uh, joining us to talk about how that's managed at, at the uh, foster and adoption level. Welcome, Terry. Thanks for joining us on WCPT. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm so glad you do what you do. And I just full disclosure here, I have volunteered for German Shepherd Rescue in various cities and places. And it, it never occurred to me to ask, how is the holiday season different? And I should have. Um, how is the holiday season different when you work in pet rescue? Well, you know, it, it's a little difficult. Um, we We want our volunteers, and we're all volunteers, to be able to spend time with their family, but yet we still have to take care of the dogs and cats at our shelter. So we did do a program. We've done it the last few years, um, and it's called uh, Home Home for the Holidays, where people can put an application in to foster an animal. And we try to get the animals out that we don't have interest in um, to see how they do in a home. And we put them in a home for about eight days, and then we do have a form for them to fill out when they return the dog or cat. Well, we're just doing dogs. Um, and it would ask questions like, was it good with your child? Was it potty trained? Um, did it, you know, did it like its food? Uh, does it go on the cow? You know, just all different questions that we ask. So when we do have somebody interested in the um, dog that uh, we can go over this list and say it was in a home for eight days and this is what we found out about the dog. We actually put a dog in a home, um, uh, a large uh, beagle mix uh, about a month ago that we thought wouldn't be really good with other dogs, but it was a volunteer who was doing the fostering, and she um, knows how to handle the dog. And the dog did great in her home, did great with other dogs. It was potty trained. Um, it listened very well. And it was just totally opposite of how the dog reacted at the shelter. So, you know, that's why we tell people when you adopt an animal, you have to give this animal time to relax, find, you know, time to realize that he's safe and time to, you know, to get to know you and your routine. Yeah. So he can, you know, follow, uh, you know, follow directions. And usually the adoptions work out really good. The hard thing with the holiday is a lot of people want a puppy or a kitten as a surprise. Aye. And, um, oh, and you I hate those work people. Out. I hate, yeah, I'm sorry. I you, just hate those six, people. It's, this so is ready. not a Lego set. This, this is, is not. an animal. And in three to six months, these animals are going to end up at shelters. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so we're always worried about that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. right now, you know, it's, it's a mess out there. You know, COVID hit and, Everyone wanted an animal. Everyone wanted a dog or a cat because they knew they were going to be locked up for a while. They thought it would be a perfect time. So all the shelters emptied out. Yeah. And then people were able to go back to work. Kids were going back to school. And now every shelter is filling up again. And because every shelter is filled up and people want to get rid of these animals, 
they're dumping them. They're dumping. You can't walk in a forest preserve without having seeing stray animals. Oh, God. It's awful. It, it's really, really sad. And the bad thing also, when COVID hit, you couldn't spay and neuter your animal. So now they're releasing these animals that aren't spayed and uh, neutered. And now there's puppies out there. Oh, that hadn't so even crossed just, my mind. When we, when we volunteered yeah. in the Bay Area with Shepherd Rescue, once somebody knows you volunteer for an organization, they dump the dog in your yard. They're like, oh, you know, sure. we, would, we would come home yeah. and like, we'd find, if we were lucky, there was a note. We know you volunteer mm-hmm. for Shepherd Rescue. We found right. one at the Forest sure. Preserve. Can we can we bring it by? Um, but but it is. Um, I, I guess what I wanted to to make sure that we communicated during during this time is that there are ways to help short of adopting a pet if you can't adopt a pet right now. And this home for the holidays sounds, on the one hand, perfect for getting the dog into permanent placement. On the other hand, it could be really sad and confusing for the people and the dog. How do you talk about that with people who say, you know, is it going to break my kid's heart if the dog has to come back? Or is it going to break my heart if I can't keep this dog? And will it hurt the dog if it comes and then it goes? Will it feel, I mean, how do you deal with that? Um, you know, and every case uh, is different. Every case isn't, uh, you know, a lot of people tell us right up front, it's just to foster. And we're fine with that because we still get to see how the animal is in the home. Plus, it's one less animal at our shelter for our volunteers to have to take care of. And therefore, they can get back to their families and celebrate the holiday with them. So, you know, if it turns out where they want to foster to adopt, And we always try, you know, I'm sure there's people that are disappointed that they did fill out an application, but we weren't able to set them up with the dog for the holidays. And those reasons would be that certain dogs that they wanted, we really wanted them, like an Australian Shepherd or something, to have a fenced-in yard. Or um, a dog that we know isn't good with other dogs or isn't good with cats or isn't good with kids. Sometimes they're interested in one of those animals. And, you know... If you look at our reviews on our, you're going to see that a lot of them aren't good reviews because when somebody's happy and they get what they want, they usually don't send a review. Oh, yes. But if somebody, you know, it used to be years ago, I've been at the shelter 21 years, so it used to be years ago people would come in, choose an animal and go home with that animal. Yes. And then we realized we're getting a lot of these animals back because it wasn't a good fit. Uh So we really take our time and we really work hard at trying to find a perfect animal for their family. You know, uh, if it's a really active animal, we're looking for families that like to go on walks or go on hikes. If it's an, if it's a couch potato animal, then we're looking for a family like that. We sometimes get little dogs, and, you know, I'm sure you, with your experience, you realize a little dog's personality is different from a big dog personality. Well, often so the little dog little likes dogs, to make trouble with the big dogs just to prove they're not really they little do. dogs. So we, we exactly. deal with that a lot. To, to your point, yeah. though, about matching, my favorite volunteering aspect of, of my time at Shepherd Rescues is to be an adoption counselor. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you use those. We do a home visit. We do an assessment of the family. Uh, Do they have an experience? Do they have an appropriate yard? Do they have a fence? Do they, I mean, if you, if all you do is walk the dog in the, in the regional park, you might not need a fence. Uh, Mm -hmm. But what was fascinating was uh, people who were beginning adopters often didn't have a very clear sense of how a dog might work or not work in their home 
just as an example, there was a lovely family and they said, well, you know, any, any German shepherd would be fine with us. And I'm there for 10 minutes and I meet their elderly grandparent who lives with them and uses a walker. And I said, well, you know, you can't have a dog that's too bouncy or it'll knock the grandmother over. So I thought, oh, we hadn't thought of that. And then I went out in the yard and their yard was gorgeous and had a big high fence. And right on the other side of it was a dog that was eager to fence fight with anybody walking along in the yard. Mm. So these are the kinds of things that people don't, when they apply, um, I'm assuming that you go over with them what what kind of a setting the dog will be in and what the dog really needs from them. Yeah. Always. Always. You know, a lot of people love the Huskies. They're beautiful dogs, but they're escape artists. So if you have a three to four foot fence... And with the Husky, that doesn't count because they're going to go right over that. You know, that's that's just a fun game for them. Also, um, heel, so we, we heel is not it. is we not a thing they like. The, the Huskies, you they know. like to pull you. That's their job. They oh, pull. Yeah, yes, sure. they pull. For sure. So I'm and, sorry. So we, we work very hard at that. And that's why some people get disappointed. They come in and they see a dog that they want. And we just, you know, after looking at their application and talking to them, it's, it's not going to be a good fit. And sometimes people get it, and sometimes they don't. You know, we had a gentleman that came in that was, he wasn't an elderly man, but he did have difficulty walking. And um, the dog that he wanted, um, you know, just showing him the dog in the play yard knocked him down, and he had a hard time getting up, and he uh. lived alone. And, you know, we had to explain to him, if this dog knocks you down in your home and you can't get up, you know, there's going to be an issue and we don't want you to get hurt and we don't want the dog returned in three months or six months. And I think people don't realize, too, that, you know, cute puppies and kittens grow up to be adults and they need training and yeah. they need social socialization with other people. Um, and sometimes people don't understand that. Plus, what we want for every animal is to go into a home where it's going to be a forever home, where they're going to live out their whole life in that home. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that doesn't happen, you know, and our, our shelter does take animals back. Um, we don't care if you adopt an animal as a puppy and you bring it back 13 years later. We've had that I dog. Think, I think we any, any responsible back. rescue group will always tell you if anything goes yeah. wrong, you, you bring the dog back here. So let's circle yeah. the back. The only issue, though, yes. the only issue with that is every shelter is full. So because of that, they might not be able to take the animal back right away. And sometimes people don't want to wait. And I think people think, okay, I'm going to just let my dog go in the forest preserve. And what they don't realize, though, is that um, they think the animal's going to be picked up and just put in a shelter right away. Oh, and God. <laughs> that doesn't happen. You know, it just doesn't happen. We found, you know, we have a, a, a dog dropped off a few weeks ago, and it was left in a bag, in a shopping bag. A puppy, uh, a pity puppy, uh, just on our sidewalk in front of the house. And it was cold. And luckily, a volunteer happened to realize, hey, there's a bag by the uh, on the sidewalk by the shelter. You know, I should look in it. And there was this little puppy. So can I, people can just, I just um, tell you how crazy it got in, in uh, one city where I lived? They oh, had sure. they had an anonymous drop off where you could open up a, a big metal door outside the shelter, place the dog in there, 
and then the door would lock and they could open it on, on the, it was warm there was food there was water and the dog was you know on the other side was a kennel so that the workers could come and get the dog you know if you dropped your dog off at three in the morning somebody would would get it by seven when the people came in but it, it's there's a lot of shame around it when something happens and you we, we saw a lot of this during the housing crunch of 2008 when people were losing their homes and they they could couldn't couldn't care for the dog anymore, and they didn't want to dump the dog. So it was like the safe surrender of the fire department, sure. um, and and that worked pretty well. But do do you know of any places around here that offer that? If someone absolutely, you know, cannot, um, I I don't. I actually don't. But I know that like if you live in Chicago, um, there's Chicago Animal Care and Control. They do a great job. Very large facility. Um, and they were, you know, I don't know any shelter right now that's not under so much stress that you can't even get enough volunteers to take care of the animals. Mm. So I, but I do not know of any place that has a drop off. Mm. Well, I can, you know, I, I, my heart goes out to these animals who thought that they had homes, um, and, and they don't understand what they did wrong. They don't know. They don't. They're totally confused and scared. I mean, but, you know, luckily we have the greatest volunteers. We get dogs in that are just in the back of the cage, just shaking. Yeah. And our volunteers, our volunteers will sit with them, talk softly to them, try to hand feed them. And it takes days of work to try to get them to trust again. And it is sad. It's very sad. And we understand that this is a hard, you know, it's, it's not easy out there. People don't have jobs or they don't make enough money. Everything costs so much. So we know that there, people, you know, have to give up their animals. And I understand that. Um, you know, but when you call, when somebody calls and says, you know, I have a 15 year old dog I need to give up because we just don't have time for it. Uh, well, you don't need a lot of time for a 15. It sleeps, you know, probably 20 hours a day. Yeah. You know, and I think just people just, and sometimes, you know, Again, you know, going back to the COVID thing, a lot of people who got puppies, you couldn't socialize them with other people because you couldn't have anyone over. Ah. And now these animals, these adult dogs, they don't like strangers. I hadn't even thought about that. I had not even thought about that. So people are taking down the Christmas trees. So it's a safer place now, your home, for, for an animal to be. If you're thinking of adopting at this time of year, what are some of the things that you should interview yourself and your family about before you go in and look at an adoptable animal? What What are the questions that people should already have answered about their households before they come see you? They have to know that it's a big responsibility, you know, who's going to be responsible for feeding the dog. And, you know, can you afford vet bills? Certain breeds of dogs cost more money than other dogs. If you get a Sharpay or you get some type of bulldog, they usually have skin uh, skin issues. They have eye issues. Do we have the money, you know, to provide this for this animal? Um, are we going to be able to afford the shots, you know, the yearly shots that we that it needs or the heartworm medicine that it needs every month? You have to ask yourself those questions. Are you going to be home enough? You know, what type of dog, you know, do you know, do we want? Do we want a big dog or a little dog? Because there is a difference in personalities when you're talking about the sizes of the dogs. Uh, do we have children in the home? Are we planning on having children in the home? 
Um, you know, if you're going to have children, then maybe you should watch what animal you're going to get um, and make sure it's going to be a friendly animal. And you can, you know, the good thing with the Internet, you could research all these different breeds. And there's also, if you can't find a certain animal that you want in a shelter, there are specific breed rescues you can go to. So if you're looking for a beagle, you can go to a beagle rescue online and, you know, work with them. Because every rescue, you know, pure breed rescue is also overflowing with animals. So you just have to, you know, and you have to, are you an active family? Are you going to go for walks? You know, if I get an Australian Shepherd, they're very smart dogs or loving dogs, but they're very, very active. And you have to get that energy level out. So you have to ask yourself, you know, do we want more of a couch potato because we're home a lot? We like to watch TV or sit around and play games. You have to ask yourself these questions. And are your children, you know, how old are your children? You know, are they going to leave little toys and stuff all over and I get a puppy and now the puppy's eating everything that's on the floor? So there's so many questions you have to ask. But, you know, but these are also questions that when they fill out the application, we do call them if we feel it would be a good uh possible home and we bring all these things up and sometimes people are like you know that's just too much work i think i'm just going to wait till the kids are older better you know? to find out now uh, my, my other question sure. would be which person in your family doesn't mind walking when it's 20 below because your dog yeah needs to go mm-hmm. out even when it's 20 below so uh yeah that's one i i think was it's interesting the things that you learn i remember there was a dog that i thought would be perfect and thanks to a group like yours I was told um, that she would be, she was very protective of children. And I said, well, that's great. We have two children. And the, and the counselor said, no, no, no. She would protect your children from other children. And I said, ah, bad, bad idea. That's, that's true. That's a bad idea. But people should be prepared to listen to the feedback that they get uh, from these yes. people who, who are experts. And, uh, you know, you can argue with them, but really... They want success for all of you. So when when do the fosterers who fostered over the Home for the Holidays program, when will they be returning the pets to the shelter? Uh, January 2nd is usually the day. Now, if they're interested in uh, adopting and they need a little more time to make that decision, we'll give them a little more time for that. That's not an issue. Um, we are, you know, so far we haven't had anyone call and say, oh, this isn't working out. Come get the dog now. That hasn't happened, uh, which is a good thing. But we only probably got about a dozen dogs out, but that's still a dozen dogs that our volunteers don't have to take care of and they can rush back to their families and enjoy the holidays. Are, so, are you privately, um, all out well. are you privately making bets on which dogs are never coming back because the families are going to fall? <laughs> do you have a, do you have a little betting pool there in the office? We do. And there's also certain, you know, everyone seems to want the same dog. Really? You know, Why? We have, uh, yeah, we have a beautiful, you know, and the whole thing people have to remember is that shelter dogs are wonderful dogs. Yes. They didn't let anyone down. It's their owners who, who made the error? Okay, you which know? is the dog that um, everybody wanted? I want to know what was a golden. It's a golden retriever, uh-huh. a year old that is so active, and it had to have it. it and it eats everything. So <laughs> the reason we got it is because it had a foreign body embedded in its stomach, uh-huh. and. It couldn't pass, so it needed surgery, so we rescued the dog from euthanasia for that. But, um, you know, and that's another thing. So if you're going to have a dog like this, it's not a dog, even though it's a year old, that you could give the run of the house if you're not home. Because when you get home, you're going to be missing some items, you know. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's so how did it do with the Christmas tree? 
that one is still at the shelter. We wouldn't let that one go. Uh, Only, well, we, well, the other thing is we have so many. We knew that right after Christmas was over, yeah. people then come and take their kids and say, okay, you know, we're going to get you a dog. We're going to go choose one together. And that is so much better than putting a dog or a kitten under the tree. Absolutely. So families will actually come in and look at the dogs, learn about them. And, the, and we know that this dog actually has an appointment for an adoption tonight. We knew that that dog would fly out the door. So we weren't too concerned about that one. But shelter you know, um, get every type of dog you could believe, and they're good dogs. They're yeah. very good dogs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so and, that's, that's a good thing. They're fixed, they're chipped, they're up to date on shots, and that saves you hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Now, could we touch on that? The people who wrote, why does it cost that? It never costs as much as it costs the, the volunteer oh, God, group no. to. No, and no. my favorite, I remember some woman when I was going through the checklist, and she lived on a busy street, and she didn't have a fence. And I said, well, you know, in your and she was elderly. And I said, are you going to let the dog out in the yard ever? And she said, yes. I said, then you're going to need to get a fence. And she said, I didn't think you needed to be rich to adopt an unwanted dog. And I said, well, somebody's going to want this dog and we would like it to live a long life, which means not going out in the street. You know, and I thought to myself, you don't have to be rich, but you do have to take some financial responsibility. So moving from that to um, people who are temporarily experiencing hard times, are there funds to help people during periods of distress so that they can keep their dog with them? Yes, we we always offer, you know, if somebody just needs food, we'll give them food. That's not an issue for your cat or your dog. You need food, we'll definitely help you with that. That's not an issue. Um, And there are a lot of, uh, you know, we had a a couple months ago, we had um, a program where we offered rabies, distemper, and Bordetella for free and chipping. Wow. And that worked out very well. I think we did, gosh, I think it was almost 300 animals we did. And a lot of places are offering things like that. And there's a lot of great places in the area. We don't have a vet at our facility, but there are places, um, South uh, uh, South Suburban Humane Society, NAWS and Mokina. They're great shelters, and they do have vets on the premise, so they do offer a package deal for spay, neuter, and deals on uh, uh, shots and so forth. And and if you can afford it, my personal recommendation: insurance, 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 insurance. Yeah, insurance. So, yeah. you can never know. Yeah, you, you never know. know. What one minute the dog right. is fine, and the next minute it's not. And it's expensive. It I mean, I'm telling crazy. you, raising a child is expensive. Raising a dog is very expensive. I used to think that a dog would be cheaper because you didn't have to send it to college, but now I'm revising. No, definitely revising. <laughs> exactly. So, what's going to be your hardest? Can you, would you like to? to promote right now the one that you think is the hidden gem amongst your lot what 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 is the hidden who's the hidden gem two of them them? Um, okay two we have uh we have a few i mean it it, where we're located it's it's hard to adopt out uh pit bulls it really is people don't want them they'll walk right by the cage and say oh no that's a pit or that has pit in there or whatever and pit bulls are actually very good dogs now you know, if my kids, I have four kids, if they were little, they're all adults now. Would I get an adult pit bull that's four or five years old that was a stray that I don't know their background? Maybe not, you know. But would I get But I wouldn't get a German Shepherd or any type of dog that age when my kids were really little. I'd go more with a puppy and let the puppy grow up with them. But So we do have a hard time at our shelter adopting out pit bulls. Um, and but is also, there one fabulous? Is there fabulous we one have, that's waiting? What we is? Have a, 
We have a pit bull named Livy, L-I-V-V-Y. That's a very nice dog. Um, oh, my gosh, I'm trying to think. We have so many dogs and so many names. Um, but, yeah, we have, I mean, we have, you know what? There's so many dogs there. If people could just come and check them out. Okay. We have a couple beautiful huskies. We have Grace. We have McKinley. Uh, we just, I mean, it's so just, just overwhelming go. the amount of The message of dogs, is just beautiful. go to Tinley Park Paws. You'll be open tomorrow. Yeah. And you can find tomorrow, the hours yeah. online. And you yeah. can tell them we sent you. And tell me, the yeah. only rule is, I mean, I want to know how it goes. So thank you so much for giving us a little behind-the-scenes view of what happens to the shelter pets at the holidays. And I wish you every adoption success under the sun. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you. It is Joan Esposito Show. I'm Tori Ryder, WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Tori Ryder. Five minutes after four o'clock, Tori Ryder behind the microphone. Joan returns the eighth. It is a pleasure to be here with you. Perhaps you are beginning your ride home a little slippery out. I noticed that when I was coming in, damp, slippery, but not icy. And I think, I think we can all thank our lucky stars for that. That's one thing you do not want. Um, an, a word of condolence to the people still trying to catch flights, stuck in their various airports. We we all know. I think I don't think there's anybody listening who does not know that feeling of just sitting in the airport and watching that flight delay read out, just go backwards, backwards, backwards. Oh, oh, nobody likes it. Nobody does. Speaking of going backwards, do you, do you read the op-eds in various publications? I, I'm reading op-eds all over the place because... Unlike some other people in our household, I'm starting to get very, very nervous about the possibility of Trump 2.0. And uh, every time I, I do deep breathing and think we've got a year, we've got a year, we can get control of the southern border so that the Republicans can't beat us over the head with that imagery. Things will settle down in the Middle East. And by the way, we're going to have a fabulous guest on the subject of the conflict in the Middle East tomorrow, someone who is truly a peace builder. But I digressed. I think if, if, if Biden can get those two things resolved, or at least calmed down, we'll be okay but the fact that I even have to worry is really, really disturbing. So I've been reading a lot of op-eds. And maybe you have too. So my first question for you is, who, who's worrying you the most? When, when you read her or you read him, you go, oh my God, I wish I hadn't looked. I wish I had not read this person's opinion. It's well-formed. It's well-researched. There's data. And it's exactly what I don't want to hear. Or whose op-eds are you reading or what publications are you reading? We go, okay, there's hope. There's a little teeny flickering matchstick worth of hope that we won't get Trump 2.0. I'm really worried about I'm like walking around. You remember those the dolls where you, you they get stuck saying one thing over and over again and you can't make them say whatever else they're supposed to say? 
I'm like one of those dolls now. I walk around the house just kind of mumbling like I'm wearing paper slippers and a and a not allowed around sharp objects, just wandering around the house going, I'm really worried about Trump. I'm just really worried about Trump. Promise me we won't get Trump. And and friends are trying to, to make me calm and they're saying, well, it's going to be all right. We got a year and naming all the things that I just named to you. And yet somehow this does not work because then I turn around and read a piece. My husband waved a piece in front of me for the New York Times of a Republican consultant saying people want to reelect President Trump because because they feel that I can barely even say this with a straight face. They feel that he's calmer than than the chaos that they're they feel that Biden's presidency has resulted in chaos and Trump's did not. Now, to me, this is so blatantly tail backwards that I, I cannot understand it. And yet this this consultant seemed to have some polling and data to back her up that Americans perceive the Biden presidency as chaotic and they they cite the border and the Middle East and gas prices as proof, even though gas prices are steadily coming down. And even though Biden slowly but surely is making his peace with Venezuela and getting some transit controls in place in Guatemala and not inciting to hatred the government of Mexico. The thing about the thing about what I'm reading when I read this op ed, I just thought we are a ramen noodle nation. We want someone who can promise us that feeling of satisfaction, a full belly, a complete package right away. Just add hot water and the problem will be fixed. And none of these problems, none, not one of them happened overnight. Not one of them happened entirely under one administration or another. They transcend party, time, um, history, and yet, Americans, writ large, are just used to having a cup you pour hot water in and there's dinner. And we want a candidate, I guess, my thought, my speculator. I've got the speculator out. If you've listened to me before, you know that is my favorite device, the speculator. I turn the speculator up to nine and I see that the people who are backing Trump just want someone to tell them that we can just pour Trump on this and all the problems will be resolved. Just pour that oily son of a right on this and it'll all be fixed. And for some reason, they have a kind of amnesia about how not fixed it was when he was in the White House. We had a pandemic that we didn't get a handle on till way later than we should have. We had pandemonium at the border, just the way we have now. We had sheriffs in in Arizona going to jail for beating up these people. We had children dying in transit camps, never mind the cages. We all know about those. And yet somehow this is perceived as being calmer. And, And you can just add January 6th as the cherry on top of that disgusting cupcake. So on the one hand, there's today's editorial explaining how Trump could get reelected. 
And on the other hand, you've got Trump continuing to act in the same nut bucket way that he's and people seem to just love it like he's a cup of ramen noodles. They know what's in there. They know what it'll taste like. They know how long it'll take before you can ingest it. They know everything they need to know about him. And for some reason, they seem to just love that. His Christmas greeting, if you could call it that. If there is a single devoted Christian who can vote for this man in good conscience, I really don't understand why. If you sat down to Christmas dinner with devout Christians who who could explain how their views are consonant with the views of this man, they, they already got what they basically said they wanted from him, which was a stacked Supreme Court. They got that. So now what do they want? Now what do, do the people on the evangelical right not, I'm, I have nothing against evangelicals. There are evangelicals on the left or in the middle, but the ones who are Trumpanistas, what exactly do they find resonates with them about his policies or his behavior? Do you know that his Christmas greeting told the people who oppose him to rot in hell? That is a quote. Merry Christmas, rot in hell? Uh, it's, if, if I weren't a talk show host, I would be completely speechless. I'd be absolutely speechless. I do not know. I do not know how anyone can possibly be supporting this kind of chaos. Under I mean, I know how people could support him for reasons that I believe they've always supported him. But why would you believe that supporting him will make your life calmer? the country calmer is it the idea that if if you say america at first enough times that it's like something out of the wizard of oz there's no place like home there's no place like home america first america first and somehow magically all of the things that are creeping towards our country that could really do us harm will never get here Look at the Republicans in Ukraine. And by the way, we will have an expert analysis, year-end analysis this weekend on the air um, to explain where things stand and where we're going with Ukraine and Russia. But that's a big that's a big stew of chaos and danger. And, and if you think it will stay put, it is not some insect that you can stick a pin through on a cork board and it just flutters around until it goes still. That's not going to happen. It will keep moving. And it will keep moving to places where we have an obligation to intervene when it gets there. Let's go to Ted. In, oh, but let me give you the phone numbers if you want to join us. 773-763-WCPT, 773-763-9278. Ted in Bensonville, welcome. You're on WCPT. Hi, Terry. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You know, so I start with asking. Remember the old. Remember the old. Uh, it's the economy, stupid. I thought of it this morning anyway, when I, I read th- that op-ed, and okay. I thought, yeah, so let, that's it. So let me tie it in. I actually believe if <laughs> Donald Trump is reelected, and this ain't going to go down easy, but I believe it. It's part of God's grand plan to teach 
the United States, the great United States, a lesson about gratitude. It's the economy, stupid. I'm 65. There's more money in our economy right now than I've ever seen. People living large out in the suburbs and overall, and, uh, and nobody's showing any gratitude. Everybody's complaining about what they don't have and what's wrong. And I got to believe that God might have a plan to show everybody what, you know, under a, a, another Trump administration, what it really means to have it bad. You know, you have a very cynical view of the almighty there, Tad. You, you're, you've, I, I almost like it. I hope you're wrong. I hope you're wrong. I do I think a mindset of gratitude would, if, if more people, could look around and appreciate it. Oh, yeah. I have a friend who's a big Trumpanista, and he 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 said, "Why why do you just hate the man?" And I said, "Well, I, I I can find a couple things I think he did well, but what's interesting is that I mean I love that he funded COVID research. I like that he called attention to the fact that the Chinese were human rights violators who were going to eat our economic lunch, and those two things I think he he did very well. But what yeah. was interesting was." Nothing came back on the other side. I was allowed to appreciate some good things about him, but the folks who were backing him could not find one decent thing to say about the folks on the other side. And that was scary. Thank you for calling, Ted. Appreciate it. It is just about 18 minutes after four o'clock. I'm Tori Ryder. It's Joan Esposito's show. And you are welcome to join it. By phone or by text, 773-763-9278. What are you predicting? What op-ed are you seeing? How are you reacting when you see it? I want to hear um, how you're making your way as we as we near the end of the week and the end of the year on Chicago's live local and progressive talk station. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet. Terry Ryder in for Joan. Yes, I'm on most of the socials, except for Truth Social. I, I That one, that is a bridge too far. Uh, that's Donald Trump's social op-ed, screed, vendor. I don't know what you could really call it. It's... it's uh, it, you can almost, if we had smell a vision, you would not be able to tolerate truth social. That's how bad it would smell. There, There's no smelling salts. There's no clothespin that could hold down the odor that emanates from truth social. I will read you one of his many Christmas, I don't know, how would you just say this? Just, it, it's like vomit. It really is. He just, just keeps puking onto his social media. Um, I asked who you you um, listen to or go to for commentary. Uh, we do have a couple of folks checking in by text. David Pakman got an award there. Um, yeah, he's fun. Mike in the South Suburbs, welcome. You are on WCPT. Hi, great show and, and, and very uh, timely topic. You know, I, I think next year, I think that truth is going to prevail because I think at that point, you know, of course, when the Biden administration, his, you know, election team, they go in the full, uh, full mode and they start laying out the differences between not just Donald Trump, but the Republican Party as a whole, what President Biden has done and what these guys propose to do or haven't done. I think it's going to be eye opening to a lot of people. There's going to be a lot of people who are caught in that cult. That nothing you can say, no truth you can show them will make a difference. 
but I think the truth is going to prevail in 2024. And I think young people, when it's really explained to them the, um, you know, the, the, the problem that happens when you decide you're going to sit on the sidelines and not vote. If you think you're upset with what President Biden is doing in regards to the, the climate, the war in Ukraine, the, the situation in the Middle East, look at what the other side is saying and what they're proposing. That'll be enough, I think, to sway people to say, no, nah, we can't. We can't go down that again. And I think it's going to be a I think it's going to be a blowout election. I don't think it's going to be anywhere close. I, I would like to have a mind meld so that your optimism can just penetrate my brain, because <laughs> I, I really feel listening to you. I could almost feel hopeful. And then I see these people saying, I don't like the way he's handled this. I don't like the way he's doing that. And, and meaning Biden. And, and I think to myself. Who raised you to believe that you would get a president who would do everything you wanted? Who raised you to believe that life involved zero compromise? I, I don't understand how you can be uh, a voting age and not have gotten the message that Biden may not be your perfect president, but at the very least, he's about a million percent better. And that is my mathematical calculation, better than the other guy. And I, I any advice for me there, Mike? No, I, I think you're right. But I think once it's all laid out, you know, I, I tell people, I have, now my background is finance and economics. And I tell people when they talk about how great the Trump presidency was and how great the economy was, in economics, there's a thing called lag effect. So the last couple of years of the Obama administration, the economic policies that he put into place were what benefited Donald Trump in his first two years. The second two years of his presidency, you know what we saw, a pandemic out of control, an economy out of control. And what Biden got in his first two years was solving all of the mess that Donald Trump had put together and now you'll see the, the benefits of what he does in terms of his economic policy. When you lay it out in front of people and you show them side by side, that's the only way that you can get them to, to really understand. And I think that Biden's team will come out as we get closer to the election and get into it where we're still, you know, the opposition research starts to go out and really lay out the position that the people on the right, not just Donald Trump, but any of the candidates on the Republican side, look at what they're saying. And then compare the two and then see which one you want to go with. Well, I would say, forget, look at what they're saying. Look at what they're doing. Look, they they say they want to support women and children. They say they want to have uh, some kind of responsible control at the border. But what they've done and what they're doing are exactly the opposite. But what I really want is to figure out a way to just pay you to go around and talk to everybody so that they all will believe you. And then I think we're <laughs> saved. Thank you so much, Mike. Good to speak with you. I, you. I hope we'll talk, talk again. Um, if you have not heard the execrable... Um, post that I'm speaking about, I'm doing this for you. I want you to know. I, I would not do this. I would not read Truth Social for myself. <clears throat> no way would I read it myself. But for you, because you need to know, and, and, and maybe just put this in an anonymous letter and send it to your Trumpanista friends who have not, have not followed the guy lately. This was his one of his several Christmas missives. Merry Christmas to all, including crooked Joe Biden's only hope 
deranged Jack Smith, the out-of-control lunatic who just hired outside attorneys fresh from the swamp, unprecedented, to help him with his poorly executed witch hunt. By the way, when you hear me stressing like that, it's because it's all caps. Witch hunt against Trump and MAGA, including included also our world leaders, both good and bad, but none of which are as evil and sick as the thugs we have inside our country who, with their open borders, inflation, Afghanistan surrender, new green scam, high taxes, no energy, independence, woke military. He just, I'm sorry, I have to add, he just slammed our military. Did you catch that? Uh, Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Iran, all electric car lunacy and so much more are looking to destroy our once great USA. May they rot. (laughs) Cannot. I really cannot. I can't finish this. May they rot in hell. Merry Christmas. (laughs) I think that was the last line. They wanted me to sign up for something. So I, I bailed out at that point. That 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 would be the person representing our country to the world. Can we just give him like a shot of something, either a hypodermic or in a glass? Can we just give this man some sort of and I've never, ever, ever wanted to violently and forcefully medicate somebody. But I imagine that's your Christmas. Imagine you go to your mailbox. There's a card from someone you care about. You open it up, and that's the Christmas letter. You open up the card, and there, right next to the ho, 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 Santa's coming down your chimney with a little bit of glitter. Right there next to the the snowy fields with the gazelles prancing, wishing you season's greetings. Because as you know, there's still a war on Christmas, which I find hilarious. Um, you, you, you get a bunch of cards and then you open the one from your beloved aunt Tilly say, and, and there, or your aunt Donna or your uncle Sid, and you, you open up the card and, and there that, there that is. You'd start calling the other relatives. I, I think aunt Tilly has just gone off the deep end. Just what I, we better get over there fast. Check to see whether she accidentally check to see whether she accidentally put the bug spray on the pan instead of the 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 oil the pan maybe maybe she ingested something check quickly get her get her blood pressure I mean seriously if someone sent me that as a holiday letter I would send CPD for a wellness check that that is not the mark of someone who is doing spectacularly well mental health wise and here's the weird part he's got a kid he's supposed to be making some kind of festive holiday for this kid just a minute sweetheart daddy's got to send one more vituperative message hold on santa will be with you shortly As soon as he finishes dissing the entire military of the United States, many of whom do not get to go home for Christmas because they are defending our country or forging relationships or keeping us safe all around the world. But the president, who earlier in his career called them, what did he call them? Cowards? Losers? Now he is calling them woke. Where on earth? What on earth? All right. I'm going to get over it. 
going to get over Suckers and losers. Thank you, Andy. God bless Andy. My brain is going, but at least his is functioning well. And speaking of functioning well, how will the city of Chicago be functioning now that there is a guilty verdict in the alderman, former alderman Ed Burke trial? We're going to talk to somebody who really knows in just moments. It's 4.30, live local and progressive WCPT. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 8.20 a.m., WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Surrey Ryder. 434, it is. Joan Esposito show. I'm Turi Ryder. We have been waiting so we could digest a little bit like one of those snakes that takes in a mouse and it takes it a little while to just kind of digest the news that one of the longest serving politicians possibly in the history of Illinois was just found guilty of every kind of racketeering just about. Uh, Alderman, former Alderman Ed Burke first elected to the city council in 1969 representing part of the Southwest side. And after a a really scandal-exposing trial, uh, just every kind of wire-wearing and and strange and seemingly petty forms of extortion, all, all of this. And on every count but one, he was found guilty. And so what are we to make of all of this? What What are we to think of this particular um, conviction? Will, will it change anything? Will it, um, what, well, what will become of us now? To join us in discussing this, a woman who is, um, she's, she's already had a stellar career, Nancy de Podesta. She was a, I want to get this right, and I may not, U.S. Attorney for Northern Illinois. Have I got that right? Yeah, I was an assistant United States attorney, yes, for the Northern District of Illinois. And you now run a big fancy law firm, yes? I don't know if I'd go that far, but yes, I'm a partner and co-chair of the White Collar Practice Group. Big fancy law firm, the kind of law firm we hope we will never, ever need, but you you know what you're doing, so you're running it. So, what are we to make, if you're just sitting up in the cheap seats without the experience of someone like yourself, what are we to make of this guilty verdict? Well, I think it's a resounding verdict. I think that the jury sent a very, very definite message that um, in finding former Alderman Burke guilty of 13 of 14 counts, that they're pretty fed up with corrupt officials who abuse their office and their power for personal gain. Could this have happened without the recordings that were made by, was it Alderman Solis who, who did the, the... It was. Yes. So what, could this have been done without those recordings? Was that really the fulcrum on which this whole lever rested? The recordings were incredibly important. And, they, and, and I, I, I do think that they were a game changer in terms of the government's case. Instead of putting on Danny Solis to testify about his conversations with Ed Burke, and let's face it, former Alderman Solis has got his own credibility issues. Yes, he does. And so he does. And so 
a jury, you know, that, then you almost have a he said, he said, right? Or there, or Alder, former Alderman Solis would have been impeached in terms of his credibility. Right. The it's a, what's in it lie. for you said is what I would say about that. The, how, mm-hmm. how, come we, how come you're coming forward now would be the, the obvious question. So, yeah. So the recordings you think really made, made push, push that jury right where it, it needed Absolutely. to go. Absolutely. Do, do you think that well, I've got so many do you think questions, but the fact that these recordings can be made and, and I'm sure that you saw the other alders all weighing in with shock and horror that someone would record them. Do you think they knew how badly they would come off when they expressed their horror that someone had recorded somebody doing something bad? I don't know, actually. And if you're referring to, you know, calling former Alderman Solis, a snitch and everything, all the other judgments cast against him. Um, Without, you know, in in some instances, they really villainized him and made him the bad guy. And while I certainly can understand and appreciate the feeling of betrayal, I think what's missing out here significantly is, you know, he, he wasn't just randomly going around and recording individuals. He was recording individuals like former Alderman Burke, who the government had reason to believe was engaged in unlawful activity. Yes, that's um, a good way of putting it. And and there was one woman, I forget which alder she was, who, I'm paraphrasing here, she was horrified because, again, paraphrasing, well, we're just like family sure. and the fact that someone would do yeah. this. And I'm thinking... We aren't we asking people to do this all the time? If someone in your family is engaged in criminal activity, don't we say put the law first? Don't we say put the community first? Don't we say, you know, if you know something, say something? What what, what kind of family do you come from? <laughs> right. Well, that's a whole different question. Um, but you're right. You're absolutely right. Unfortunately, the, the sad reality is, is that oftentimes people don't just come forward because it's the right thing to do. And so in this instance, of course, you know, so Lee had the incentive to cooperate with the government. But, you know, the, the words that we heard on, heard on those recordings, those came from Alderman Burke. Those were his words that the jury used to convict. Um, and, you know, it, it's a it's sort of, it's unfortunate that we tend to villainize and ostracize the people that do come forward. Yes. I'm not saying that Solis came forward. Yes. They no, certainly had a hammer over his head. But the people who are willing, ultimately, for whatever reasons, even mm-hmm. if it's saving their own skin, and I say this as a mother who said to a, a kid of mine once, you know, you get yourself in, you'll get yourself out. That That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, because, um, you know, teenagers. But, but, um, <laughs> I do know. <laughs> alas, we, alas, <laughs> we all know. Um, I, I think we all know. But but the thing that scandal and, and speaking of teenagers, one of the things that horrified me the most, and I, as you looked at all of the testimony that came in, the one that just stuck in my craw was his willingness to punish the Field Museum. That, that one, right. do you think that there was a particular thing that horrified the jury more? Would that have been the one that did it? Or is there another one that I missed that if you're just a regular folk sitting in your jury box, you're going, well, that's too much. That, that's just too well, much. I understand. I understand what, where you're coming from, right? We're talking about an internship for, for I don't know if it was a teenager or 20-year-old. His goddaughter, I believe. About, yeah, young adult. Right, we're, talk, we're talking about an internship. And, 
look at the power that he used in order to get an internship um, at the Field Museum. So it is offensive. It is, it's highly offensive. But to say what was the most is difficult to say. I think some of the things that might have been the most offensive were the comments and the expressions that the video or that the jurors were able to see as um, former Alderman Burke was making these comments through the videos. Casual yeah, racism, casual bigotry, casual, yeah. He didn't like anybody, really. Yeah, it was awful, and it really provided an inside look um, as to what was happening. And and I think as you as, as I'm hearing you react, I wonder if any of the other alders are going to do a little personal inventorying of their own. Would, would in your experience, does this make anybody else better or just people go on as they've been thinking, well, it's not going to happen to me. I won't get caught. Well, I think both to answer your question. I think we do see both. I do think, at least I certainly would like to believe, and I and I do believe it is the case, that it does for some people to step back. They know that the federal government is out there. They know that they are investigating that public corruption is a priority. And they've had success at making these cases. Um, But for some people, it amazes me. It surprises me that despite the prosecutions that we've had, that it hasn't served as a deterrent from others. Do you... Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was no, going to go ask, do you, do you think it's generational? In my generation, for the most part, and my kids' generation, and they're, you know, they don't have kids yet, thank you, I'll wait. Um, but I, I think there's a perception now that anything you say can end up in social media or someone can record it. There can be something, I mean, it's not, we're not looking at James Bond equipment anymore. Anything you say to anybody can be kept for as long as someone wants to keep it. Do, do you think that the older generation hasn't quite assimilated that possibility yet and the younger people will behave better because they know that it's possible or is the technology not a factor at all? It's a great question. You know, when we look at the past prosecutions, it really isn't hasn't been social media that has led to the, the convictions in these cases. It is sort of the old-fashioned type recordings, you know, one individual wearing a wire and having a conversation with another. It's the wiretaps on the phones. Uh, there is greater opportunity now with social media and, and really everything being saved or not ever really being deleted. Uh, or just the fact is, that people don't have to wear a wire. They have a recorder on their phone. No. I, it was the point I was trying to make more than social right. media. You can you can record anybody anytime. And, you know, they have you put your phone in the dish. They're not doing the pat down. You can have six more phones and nobody will see yes. that. Right. Right. So that gets into some some legal issues, because in certain states, Illinois being one of them, it's a two party consent state. In other words, in order to record somebody, both individuals need to agree to be recorded. Really? Because um, I, 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 and you're sure about that? Because I, I'm not sure. It's been a while since I've looked at that. Statue. I will tell you why I don't think that's, and I, I will look this up. But I had an incident. No, so will I now. <laughs> I had an incident where somebody um, hit my car for for no good reason, and and I um. 
and, and promised me that he would take responsibility. And I, I insisted that we go to the police station where, as you could predict, he decided that he had not hit my car, that I had hit him and refused sure. to. So on the way out, I just hit record on the phone and uh, and, and asked him why, why he had why had he hit my car? And he explained that he had no idea why he had backed up like that. And he didn't know why he'd hit my car. And I recorded all this. And in the end, when the big fancy insurance company lawyer said, well, you recorded that, I had looked it up. And I said to the big fancy insurance lawyer, I said, "Uh, you're in my wheelhouse now. It's one party consent in (laughs) Illinois. And I'm the one party. So I don't know. I could be wrong. But and maybe it's different for a phone tap or a recording on the street. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I looked it up so that that guy just backed right. He he deflated faster than one of those yard toys at Halloween that someone sticks a knife in. Just so I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Certainly having the recording. And certainly having the recording is persuasive, whether or not it's admissible in court, maybe another Thing. Yes, uh, maybe absolutely. that's true. There are so many opportunities now to capture evidence in ways that we didn't before. And so, yes, I do think that is a risk. But, you know, even with that, I, I, I still don't know that people really think in terms of, well, this is going to happen to me or that somebody's listening to me. Um, that remains to be seen. Yeah. Are there people that in your knowledge of the intricacies of the city council and the state of Illinois that you're just you're just waiting for that proverbial shoe to fall? You're you're just you go home and you say to your family at dinner, well, they got Burke. Next up is anybody. Nobody that comes to my mind at the moment. Um, Do I think that we will see other cases? Yes. I, I don't think that the U.S. Attorney's Office is by any means done or that the public corruption unit is going away. Um, and I fully believe that these investigations continue and are ongoing and we will see others. With with all the experience you have, what tends to get their attention and what tends to say, OK, we're going to go after this one. This is juicy. We're, mm-hmm. We can get somewhere with this. You know, it's a great question because I've seen such the spectrum of cases, some that, you know, might be viewed as more petty and others that are viewed as more egregious. I, I think it really depends. I think it depends on the individual. I think it depends on their position and it depends on the nature of the conduct as well as whether or not they have the evidence to support the allegation that oftentimes and very oftentimes does drive whether or not the government decides to pursue charges is whether or not they can meet their burden in the case. Well, I think we've all sort of observed that in action. I I guess what I'm asking is, are they willing to put in the work to see if they can collect the data um, before they, I mean, does it all have to be brought to them in a neat little bundle where they go, okay, so, so what is the thing that, that makes them say, Hmm, if we could prove this, this would really be something. What what are, it's it the nature you mentioned, the egregiousness of the the nature of the information. I think it's the nature of the information that they are getting is Uh whether or not they can corroborate that information. Where are they getting that information from? Whom are they getting the information? Can it be corroborated? Can they build the case? It does not have to come in, you know, wrapped up with a bow. Oftentimes we see that these investigations take years to make. Um, and, and sometimes it's a matter of 
going after one person who in turn flips on somebody else and onward and upward. Should someone who's experienced something like, you'd have to be a pretty brave person or you would have had to have been a pretty brave person to have ratted out Alderman Burke in his heyday. Um, Is there any encouragement or any words of support you can offer people who might come into contact with someone with his or her handout where you have to decide you're a business person, you want to open up your business, you're a professional, you need your license, you whatever it is you need to do, that it's worth fighting, it's worth turning in this person, it's worth collecting what you've learned and bringing it to someone. Or in, in a general way of doing things, is it better to just duck your head and keep going and try to make it work somehow? I certainly can't say what's better. I can tell you, um, you know, everyone have to live with themselves and their own decisions in terms of what they decide. I understand that people haven't come forward in the past because of fear of retaliation or fear of being labeled or being ostracized. Ostracized, I suppose for some people, it served them well to go along with others. But there is a way to come forward anonymously. Somebody does not have to come forward and necessarily give their name. Um, The FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office, gets anonymous tips all the time. Um, And legally, uh, if somebody does come forward with truthful information, they cannot be retaliated against. There's what's right. There's what's wrong. There's what is. So yeah, theoretically, no, but in, in reality, yes. So that's a nice thing to say. (laughs) I wish it were true, but, um, circling back to what you said though, that when they try to figure out whether they should pursue something, if you're not willing to stick your name on the fact that somebody tried to shake you down for a contribution to give you your business license, how much weight would that get? Would they need like four or five people calling and saying that? Or what, what, how does that play out in the office when that message comes in? They don't necessarily need four or five people. The question is, is how reliable is the information that this individual is giving? Um, can they corroborate what it was that they're reporting to the government? In other words, can they show if they don't have the recording of the phone call? Can they show the fact that there was a phone call between the person making the report and say government official A? Can, are there phone records to corroborate it? Is there an email? Is there a text message? Is there anything else to corroborate what is being reported? You know, sometimes maybe the more people who come forward, the more likely it's true, but it doesn't need to be four or five people coming forward in order for the government to make a case. Well, I'm glad to hear that. That is definitely encouraging. Um, and there's, I mean, I will tell you that, that there's still plenty of, alder problem to go around just from the casual knowledge that I have of my particular. And then there's stuff that you, you know, you know is wrong, but you can't exactly prove it. What would you say that the, the city of Chicago might do if it wanted to take some basic steps to ferreting out or eliminating or just ending this kind of behavior, which I think we all know may not be happening on a Burke scale, but still happens. Right. I think it's it's providing the opportunities for whistleblowers to come forward. 
And I believe that there are those opportunities. It's also those people coming forward. And then when they do, I mean, obviously not each and every claim can get investigated. Mm-hmm. That, that is the reality. So it's coming forward with enough information to, even if you can't prove it, it's not on the whistleblower to make the case or to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, but to give enough information to those who are responsible for investigating it, to take that information and and turn it into an investigation that becomes ultimately a prosecution, or at least that there's some sort of adverse action taken um, in order to root out the behavior. Okay. Well, that makes perfect sense. Um, so this is all, this is actually encouraging. All of it is sort of encouraging. <laughs> I don't have enough historical memory to, to say. Maybe you remember what started this whole investigation of Ed Burke. Do you recall? I do not. I don't. You know, one of the questions that I did hear being asked is, you know, why did it take so long? Right. He's been an alderman for over 50 years. Why did it take so long? I think that it's not enough, obviously, to charge somebody or, you know, bring an indictment against somebody based on rumors or hearsay. So as much as there might have been talk and chatter for however long, um, it wasn't until, you know, the, the government had the evidence that they could bring it. I can't answer. I don't know, as I sit here right now, what it was that started this investigation. Alderman Burke has long been, though, I would say, um, on the government's radar. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's old style Chicago. We all exactly we, we all look at that. I mean, those of us of a certain age who grew up here or spent a lot of time around here, we all have stories and we kind of chuckle over them um, because that was the way Chicago worked. I mean, I, I distinctly remember um, the first mayor daily. Uh, when uh-huh. a, a certain a certain person who later became a congressman after having been and a federal judge, Ab Mikva, after he was redistricting, redistricted out uh, and lost an election, having gone up against the daily machine, so, someone who had supported him um, and was known to have supported him got a visit from the local precinct captain saying, you know, I, you really should take that lawn sign down and you might want to revise. And, and the end of that story is that one morning the guy came out and the city of Chicago had dug up the street in front of his driveway, just mm-hmm. dug it up for no particular reason because they could. Um, and, th- and we all used to laugh at stuff like that. That was just the way that the city operated. How far are we from not being that city anymore? Oh, I, I'd like to say that we're far. I, I don't think we speak quite that, but I don't think, you know, I, unfortunately, I think that we've got a ways to go. Mm. I, I do think that there are good people. I really do. I think that we, there are some good people in politics in Chicago, the state of Illinois, but there are still those who, I don't even think it's that they grew up with the way that you describe Chicago and how it used to be, but somehow they learned it along the way and still think that that's okay. Yeah. Well, or that they, maybe they don't even think it's okay. Maybe it's just that they think that they're not going to get caught. 
One way or the other, I guess time will tell. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And now I'm going to go look up who gets to record what in the state of Illinois. And I hope we get to talk again. You may be right. I will personally apologize to you in public, on the air, and by whatever communication if it turns out I'm wrong. And all I can say is if it turns out I was wrong, it still got them to pay my claim, my recording of that guy. So You know what? I do do think that what you're saying sounds correct. I do think that there was a change to the law in Illinois. Um, a few years back. Well, so I actually think that you are right. Oh, and- no. Oh, no. That never happens. Thank you so much for being with us. You were a joy, a delight. My and pleasure. May I never need your services, but I'm glad to know you're there. Nancy DePodesta, former everything, runner of big white collar legal firms and our guest today. And Patty will be in in a few minutes to drive you home. I will see you tomorrow. I can tell you, you're going to hear from somebody you never thought you would hear from, a view you might never have expected about the Israel-Gaza conflict. That's just one of the things we're going to talk about tomorrow.